Turning your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3 as we're continuing, of course, our study of Paul's letter to Timothy. And we're seeing this special book as Paul writes not only individually to Timothy, but he writes to the church at Ephesus. Paul has given instructions to Timothy. He left him in the city. He's gone over to Macedonia, and he wanted Paul to, he wanted to, to tell Timothy some things to do. The letter deals with a lot of different things about how the church is to function. Instructions on leadership and dealing with false teachers, relationships within the body, and roles of men, women and men, and so much more. Well, this morning we actually see the purpose that he writes the letter. Paul wanted the people to know how to conduct themselves within the body, and that's the key for us as well. We need to know how we as a local church are supposed to function. As we look at the passage today, we're going to see something else too. We're going to see a poem. It's a first century poem about Jesus Christ, and I think it fits right in with Christmas because the very beginning of the poem talks about that he was revealed in the flesh, which means he became a human being, and then the last part of the poem talks about being taken up into glory. That's his ascension. So we see how Jesus came and died on the cross, paid for sin, rose again, and ascended it back to the Father. As we look at this poem, we'll see some great truths. So this morning, we're going to see several things. First of all, the purpose of this letter, which is the instructions to the believers, and then the poem about our Savior, Jesus Christ. May we focus on Jesus as we study this morning. There's a lot of things there. Well, you know, at Countryside, in order to be a member, we have a thing called a membership training seminar that we ask believers to go through to attend so that they can have an understanding about the church. In the seminar, we deal with areas like this. We deal with what we believe about Christ, what we believe about the Bible, what we believe about salvation. We also talk about our philosophy of ministry. And people say, what, what do you mean philosophy of ministry? The truth is, every church has a philosophy of ministry whether they realize it or not. At Countryside, we call our philosophy of ministry gathered and scattered. See, we see our body coming together, that's gathered, and then we see ourselves going out in the community, that's scattered. And what we find out is this, as we gather for worship and training, we come together on a Sunday morning or Sunday night or a Wednesday night or, or a small group or something, we gather together to worship our Savior Jesus Christ and then to be trained and equipped to serve Him. Then we scatter, we leave here and we go into the community and we scatter for evangelism. It is important that we as believers know what we're supposed to do as a church, as a local body, as we gather and scatter. Well, in our passage this morning, Paul reminds Timothy that he wrote this letter so that believers would know what they are to do when they come together, when they gather in that sense. We want to be encouraged from this passage in this study. Well, let's begin. As we, as we begin, I want to remind you of where we are. Paul has just dealt with the whole issue on leadership. In fact, all of chapter 3, beginning at verse 1 through verse 13, deals with leadership. He deals with characteristics of elders and deacons. They're mature men to oversee the body, both in the physical and, and uh, the spiritual aspects. Leadership is important in the body. We talked about this really for two weeks. Leaders set the example for the body. They set the direction. They lead in doing the service, and they hold the body accountable. In verses 1 through 7, we saw characteristics of elders. In verses 8 through 13, we saw the characteristics of deacons. They're mature men. They're morally pure. They're strong in the faith. They manage their households. They have good reputations. Well, from that, as we continue, Paul then gives us the purpose for the letter and the poem. So let me give you this. I want to show you. This is how we break it down. In verses 14 and 15 this morning we see Paul's purpose. He says he wants them to know what they're to do, how to conduct themselves in the body. And then the second part we'll see is the poem about Christ. And there are six statements about him. And we'll see that as we go through. So it's pretty good. Let's start with the purpose. Look what he says, verses 14 and 15. He says, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. 
But in case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. So simply put, Paul says, I'm writing this letter so you'll know how, what you're supposed to do as a body of believers as you come together, as you scatter out, what you're supposed to do. Notice he says, I am writing these things. What things? Well, we've already seen that he talked about false teachers, he talked about being faithful, he talked about prayer in the body, he's talked about the role of women, he's talked about the characteristics of elders and deacons, and that's just the start. That's just through chapter the first three chapters. When we come back, now next week we're going to do a couple of Christmas messages, and when we come back from Christmas, we'll start back in, in uh, chapter 4. And in chapter 4, 5, and 6, he's going to continue to give information about how to conduct themselves. That's the bottom line. He says, this is what you're supposed to do. Now he says this, I'm writing these things to you. Now he's writing to Timothy. Remember, he's not only writing to Timothy individually, but he's writing to this church. And the church is as Ephesus. Because if you go back to the very beginning of the book where Paul says, uh, I, I, when I left to go to Macedonia, I urge you to stay at Ephesus. You ever thought about this church? It's a very incredible church that he's writing to. Um, it, in, that, in the first century, when Paul left, Macedonia is, of course, Greece. And, and uh, the church at Ephesus is in modern-day Turkey. And at that time, it was probably the most important church that there was. Besides Jerusalem, which was the mother church, Ephesus was incredible. If you, if you may not realize this, but the church at Ephesus had three biblical letters written to it. You may say, three letters written to it? Well, we all know the book of Ephesians. That's the letter to Ephesus. But we realize that First Timothy was written to the church at Ephesus because Paul said, stay there, here's the information for this church. And then if you also remember in the book of Revelation, in the first three chapters, there are seven churches mentioned. One of those churches that is, has a letter is the church at Ephesus. So this church was amazing. Now, it was very strong. But what we have found by the time that Paul writes this letter, which was about 62, 63 A.D., that there, there, there were some problems. Some of the men in leadership were teaching false things. So Paul actually tells Timothy he's going to have to deal with those men and he's going to have to put godly men in places of leadership. That's why chapter 3 gave all those characteristics of what a person is going to be like to be in leadership. And that's what we saw for those weeks. Now look what he says. He says, I'm writing these things to you hoping to come to you before long. Literally says, I hope to come quickly. Paul doesn't know when he'll get back, but that's the plan. He wants to come. He's been in Macedonia. He wants to come back. Now, here's the plan. I'm writing these things to you hoping to come to you before long, but in case... I am delayed. Some of our Bibles say, if I am delayed, and it's a third class if in the Greek, which means if, and I don't know if I'm going to be delayed or not. I'm not sure. But if I don't get back there, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. He says very plainly, I'm writing this letter so you'll know what to do. We, we look at a letter like this. In fact, the truth is you, the whole New Testament, the, in fact, the whole Bible as a whole is written for our instructions. This letter was written to a church to say, this is what you do. This is what you do about false teachers. This is what you do about prayer. This is what you do about the women. This is what you do about leadership. This is what you do about this. And he goes on and on. So he's telling us things on how we know how to operate, you might say, the church. And so he says, I'm writing these things, but in case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct themselves. 
themselves in the household of God. Now, the word conduct is an unusual word. It literally means up and down. It has an idea of up and down and in and out. He's saying in all the movement that goes on within the body of Christ, within the church, he says, I'm writing this so you'll know how you're supposed to do these things. He's been dealing with false teachers. He's been dealing with teaching. He's been dealing with elders and deacons and women's roles, all of these things. He says, I want you to know how this functions. Now, notice something I think is important. He says, but in case I'm delayed, I write these things so you'll know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. When he says the household of God, he's not talking about a building. In fact, in the first century, they met usually in homes. They met in smaller groups, and then sometimes they'd come together in a bigger building, all of them, but they met mostly in smaller homes. So when he says household, he's talking about believers as a family. Now, sometimes there's confusion when you say church. See, some people, when you say the church, they think of a couple of things. They think of church as an event. Like, did you go to church today? Or we had church today. They think of that as an event. Sometimes people think of the church as a building. They say things like, where is your church? What they're really meaning is, where is the building that your church meets? Because the church actually are the people. The church is the body of Christ. The church is those who have trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior. This is just a building. And by the way, listen, this is not a sanctuary. Many of you grew up in churches and places that call this a sanctuary. Sanctuary is the dwelling place of God. What do you not know? Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you. You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your bodies. You are the sanctuary of God. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. This is an auditorium. This is a building. You are the church. You are the body of Christ. You are the believer. So he says this. He says, I wrote these so that a person will know how to conduct himself in the household of God. And he's not talking about the building. He's talking about the church as a family. The church as believers are seen as a family of God. And I want you to think about that. You realize that when you believe in Jesus Christ as Savior, you're in the family of God. In fact, God is our Father. Now, I want you to understand something. God is not the Father of all people. God is the Creator of all people, but He's not the Father of all people. When people say the fatherhood and the brotherhood of man, no, no, no. Jesus Christ died for us, paid for sins. When we believe in Him, we become a child of God, and God becomes our Father. So we think about it that way. He's our Father. We're children of God. John 1.12, as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even those who believe in His name. So we become children of God, and in reality, we're like brothers and sisters. That's why the Bible talks about brothers and sisters and all that, because the Bible looks at the church, the believers, as a family. God being the Father, we being brothers and sisters. And he says, I want you to know in this household how things function. Now, the truth is, sometimes it always doesn't function great. And sometimes we, we rub one another the wrong way. I found this poem the other day. Listen to this. It says, to live above with saints we love, that will be such glory. But to live below with saints we know, well, that's another story. And it's true, right? Because we all rub each other sometimes the wrong way. That's so, in families, it, the brothers and sisters sometimes don't get along. Sometimes in the body of Christ, this household, it's the same way. But what we do is we love one another. And as 1 Peter 4, 8 says, let love cover over a multitude of sins. That's what we're supposed to do. So it's very powerful. 1 Peter 2, 5, you know what it says? It says that we as the believers are a spiritual house, a spiritual family, so to speak. We are the church, the body of Christ. It's so powerful. Now, with that, with that in mind, I want you to think about for a second that, that the church is not a building. It's the people. And that what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to function? Well, I told you already a little bit, but look at this. We function in a twofold way. We gather 
and scatter. Now think about this. We gather, we come together for worship and training. That's whether it's a Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, Sunday schooling. We gather together for worship and training. And then we scatter. We leave this place. We go back into the community with the salvation message. So we gather for worship and training. We scatter for evangelism and service. I want you to think about it. When we come together, like on a Sunday morning, we've come together to worship Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to understand, worship is much more than the music. A lot of people think music's the worship and then there's the teaching. I want you to understand that worship is responding to God. Everything that you do, whether we pray, we give, we study, we make application, we sing, we, all of this, those are, that, those, that's acts of worship. So we come together this morning as a group of believers, as a family of God, we've come together to worship our Savior, Jesus Christ, and to be trained and equipped to serve Him. That's why we teach the Bible. That's why we go verse by verse, passage by passage, so that you can know the Bible, so you can make application in your life. And you can say, okay, I understand that. I'm trained and I'm equipped. That's the plan. You're trained and equipped to serve Him. So we gather for worship and training, and then we scatter but going into the community with the message of salvation. We go to do that. We tell people about Jesus Christ. Now, sometimes there's confusion. A lot of, a lot of churches have the view that you gather for evangelism, that the pastor is supposed to give an evangelistic message every week. Well, the, the truth is this. It is the body of believers who gather together for worship and training. And the evangelism as a whole is to be done as each one of us scatter into this community, taking the message of Jesus Christ into what I call your sphere of influence. The people that you come in contact with, you're the one to take the message of Jesus Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't give the gospel. You've heard me give the gospel many times. You've heard me tell the salvation message many times. When we gather, I'm going to present the gospel message, especially if the passage deals with it, but primarily we are gathered to worship our Savior and to be trained, and we scatter to take the message of Jesus Christ into our community and into our world. Ray Stedman, he's passed away now, he's a great Bible teacher, here's what he says. He says, there is a most damaging concept to the effectiveness of the church. Many have the idea that the business of the church is to get the non-Christian to come to the meeting. No, the ministry is to take the good news to where the non-Christian is. We gather for worship and training. We scatter for evangelism. And, and, and we do that. So we, we think about it. Why are we here this morning? We've come, each one of you who knows Jesus Christ as Savior, you've come to worship Jesus Christ, whether it's through your singing, through your giving, <coughs> through your praying, through the study of the Word of God and making application. And then you've come also to be trained and equipped. And that's why we're teaching the Bible so you can say, okay, I got that. I've learned that. I'm changing. I'm growing so that we can do that. Then when we leave... We're going to people who do not know Jesus Christ because they're people you deal with every day that they just don't have a clue. They don't have a clue. They don't know it's faith alone in Christ alone for eternal life. Cindy LeFevre writes in USA Today, here's what she said. So many churches are attempting to please the consumer. High-tech entertainment, daycare, self-help groups, no plea for money, no Bible thumping. From California to Maine, we have happy customers eating up fast food religion. We are here, our purpose as we come together, worship, training, we scatter. Our purpose is to be ambassadors for Christ, taking the message of Jesus Christ. So he says, listen, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come as quickly as I can, but if I get delayed and I don't get to come, I write so that you'll know how to conduct yourself in the household, in the family of God. And then he goes on to say, which is the church of the living God. 
the pillar in support of the truth. He calls it the church, the living God. By the way, the church literally is a Greek word, ekklesia, which means the called out ones. See, we were dead in trespasses and sins. We were in a fallen world. And when you trust in Jesus Christ as Savior, He calls you out of this world and places you in the body of Christ and places us in the family of God. So we're the called out ones. So He says, I I want you to know how to operate in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. Not idols, but the living God. And it says the pillar in support of the truth. Now, the word pillar, pillar means to hold up something and support has the idea of basis. The church, the body of Christ, us, the family of God, we have the truth, the truth of God's word. We have the truth of how people are to live. We have the truth of salvation. John 17, 17 says, thy word is truth. We are the salt and the light in this community. Think about it. As each one of you go out these doors, you go out with the great message of Jesus Christ. Listen to this. Vance Havner wrote this because, you know, he's, he's passed away as well. He, was, he lived to be, I think, 90, he was 98 years old and still preaching, still doing that. And here's what he said. He said, in other days, people chose a church based on doctrinal convictions. Now that most churches don't stand for the truth, people choose churches based on social reasons. That is amazing. I talk to people and they, they talk about going to church and I say, do you believe what that church believes? And you know what some people say to me? It doesn't matter what they believe. We don't go to church for what people believe. We go to church for the music. Or we go to the church because of the daycare. Or we go to the church because of this. Or we go to the church because my friend goes. But it doesn't matter what the church believes, as many people say. Listen, I think it does matter what the church believes, what the body believes. So Paul says... I'm writing so that you'll know how to conduct yourself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth, the foundational truths that we are to uphold. The issues of salvation, the right from wrongs, lifestyle, future, priorities, as faithful members of the body, we are the basis of the truth. We give the truths concerning the person and the work of Jesus Christ, that he is the Son of God who died and rose again and gives eternal life to all who believe. We hold to the truths of salvation. I read a story recently about a man who went to Eastern Europe, and he was talking to a young girl there, and, and, and she asked him to describe the American church, and he was telling her about numbers and programs and buildings, and then she said, what difference does that make in the lives of the people? What difference does it make? We're supposed to be impacting people for Jesus Christ. When we come together on a Sunday morning, we have the privilege of worshiping the living God. We have the privilege of studying the Word of God so that we can know it and we can be trained and equipped so that when we scatter into this community, we can tell people the truths of Christ. We can, do, we can, we can equip the saints to do the ministry, to build up the body of Christ. We can tell the, the good news message so people can come to know Jesus Christ as Savior. So my prayer is that we'll understand what we do. We gather and we scatter. We'll make an impact that way. Now, from that, I want you to see the last part. It's just one verse, but it's a little bit longer. But there are six statements about Jesus Christ in this poem. Look what it says, verse 16. It says, by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. Now, when he says common confession, what he means, this is what we all agree on. He's saying in the first century when this poem was written, now whether Paul is writing this right now or whether it was a poem that had been passed around that everybody knew, he's saying by common confession, this is something and we agree on and he says great is the mystery of godliness he's talking about Jesus Christ and when he talks about the mystery mystery in the Bible is something that was not revealed in the past but is now being revealed and Paul is saying there are things about Jesus Christ that people didn't know in the past and now he's saying now they've been revealed 
It's a very powerful thing. That's a little poem. Now, you might look at this, and I want you to understand that, that in the Greek, in the original language, it actually has a rhyme and a rhythm. Now, in English, it doesn't. It, you know, you'd say, that's not that, it doesn't, that poem don't rhyme. It doesn't rhyme. But in the Greek, it actually does. It has a flow. But in English, of course, when you translate it from Greek to English, it's, it's a little bit different. Notice it says, he was revealed in the flesh, was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. There are six statements about our Savior. And it fits the Christmas time because one of them, the very first one, talks about him becoming a person. Look at the first one. The first one is revealed in the flesh. Notice, uh, he who was revealed in the flesh. And the word revealed means manifested, seen in the flesh. Jesus Christ became a person. He became a human being. Jesus Christ is the eternal God, and at a point in time in history, he left the glories of heaven and became a person. John 1.14 says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. John 1.18 says, we beheld his glory as the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus Christ is God who became a human being. He's always existed, but at a point in time in history, he became a person. 1 Peter 1.20 says, he has appeared. Now, why in the world would Jesus Christ become a person? Why would God become a person? Because we've all seen and come short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death, and the death of an animal, and the shedding of an animal's blood, and the blood of an animal can't pay for sin. The only sacrifice that can pay for a human being's sin is another human being, and it's going to have to be a perfect human being. That's why Jesus Christ, who is God, left the glories of heaven to become a perfect human being so he could die in our place. So when you think of the Christmas story, and very soon we're going to be thinking about the baby being born in Bethlehem and everybody coming to see the one who was born, you know, that baby is God who became a person to die for me and you. To take our place so that we could have eternal life. So that we could be saved, as we say. One of my favorite passages is the Philippians passage, Philippians 2, 5 through 11. It says, let the attitude that was in, in you, all, that was all, let the attitude in you be, which is also was in Christ Jesus. That though he existed as God, he thought it not something to be held on to, but he emptied himself. And took the form of a servant and became in the likeness of a human being and was found in fashion as a man. And then he said he humbled himself to be obedient to death, even the death of the cross. It goes on to say, therefore God has highly exalted him, given him a name above every name. See, Jesus Christ left the glories of heaven to become a person so he could die for us. That's the first thing. Second thing is he is, says vindicated by the Spirit. Uh, uh, my Bible says vindicated in the Spirit, but the, the Greek word really is the word by. It has the same thing. The idea is he's declared righteous, declared to be the one. See, the Holy Spirit declared who Jesus is. He is the Son of God. He is the righteous Son of God. Do you know there were three different times in which it was very obvious that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? I want you to think about it. One was at the baptism. Remember at the baptism when Jesus Christ was baptized by John the Baptist? When he came up out of the water, the Holy Spirit came down and then a voice came out of heaven which was the father and he said this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased See, Jesus Christ was declared to be the son of God by his life he said if you've seen me you've seen the father I and the father are one Jesus Christ claimed to be the son of God and then even at his resurrection at Romans chapter 1 verse 4 says he is declared to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead so when this passage says he was vindicated 
or you know, uh, vindicated in the Spirit or by the Spirit, it means that he was revealed or declared to be the Son of God. That's who he is. So he is God who became a person. But when he became a person, he just didn't become a person. He's still the God-man. There's a third thing. He was beheld by angels. That means angels saw him. Notice it says, seen by angels. Now you may say, what is the big deal about being seen by angels? Right? Well, let me show you something. Do you realize there's a place in Peter that says that angels desire to look on the things that God has done for man? Angels want to know what God has done for mankind. You may say, why? Well, I want you to think about this. When Lucifer sinned, who is an angel, and some angels followed him, we call them demons now, you understand that God has no provision to save the fallen angels. In fact, the lake of fire, which we call hell, but the Bible calls the lake of fire, was prepared, this is Matthew 24, was prepared for the devil and his angels. Angels, the angels that are fallen, there is no provision for salvation. However, when mankind sinned and fell, God has provided a way of salvation through Jesus Christ. Perfect God brings sinful man back to himself using his son, Jesus Christ. That's the reason angels want to see Jesus, because Jesus came to be the Savior of mankind. Do you realize that angels were at every aspect of what Jesus did? When Mary, when an angel came to Mary, Gabriel came to her and told her she was going to have a baby. The night that Jesus Christ was born, the angels came to the shepherds and said, Behold, we bring good news of great joy to all people. Born this day in the city of David is the Messiah, the Savior, Christ the Lord. The angels were there then. Angels were there during his life. Angels were there during the temptation. The angels were there and when he went the very last night that he gets arrested, he goes into the garden. Angels were there when he was praying. They ministered to him. And then even after his death and resurrection, if you remember when they came out to the tomb. Now, by the way, who rolled the stone away from the tomb? Do you know who did that? Angel did that. And when they came to the tomb to look in and he wasn't there, they saw two angels and they said, why are you looking in here? You know, why are you looking for the living among the dead? And even when Jesus ascended into heaven, they were all standing with Jesus on top of the Mount of Olives. He ascends into heaven. They all look at it like this. And suddenly there are two angels there and the angels say, why are you all standing looking up in the sky? Get back to Jerusalem. Do what he told you to do. Angels were in every aspect. So when it says he was seen by angels, they saw him as the one who was the Messiah and the Savior for mankind. The one who would die on the cross, pay for sin, and rise again to save mankind. There's the fourth thing. Proclaimed among the nations. And it's true that he is announced as the one who died and rose again. And the message, of course, began to spread from Jerusalem throughout the whole world. By the time this was written in A.D. 63-64, the message had already spread out to what we call the known world. In fact, Colossians 1.23 says it's gone to the nations. That message was that Jesus is the Son of God and He died and rose again and whoever believes in Him has eternal life. What is our commission? Matthew 28.18-20 It is to go to all the nations and make disciples. It is to spread the message to the whole world. Every one of us in this room have the privilege of helping fulfill this. We're to proclaim Jesus Christ starting right here in this community and through Throughout the whole world. I love the next part. Look what it says. Believed on in the world. See the response. 
of the fact that Jesus Christ died and rose again and gives eternal life, the response is to believe in him. And many people have believed in Jesus Christ as Savior. John 1.12 says, As many have received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even those who believe in his name. In John 17, verse 21, Jesus Christ sends them out and he says, I send you out to the world so that they might believe. That's the truth. By the way, salvation is always by faith. It is always simply the gift of God. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. It's by grace we are saved through faith, not of ourselves. It's the gift of God, not of words, lest anyone should boast. Salvation is always a gift. So he is God who became a person, who was declared to be the Son of God, who was seen by the angels, who was proclaimed throughout the whole world, who was believed in the world, and last but not least, taken up into glory. You know where Jesus is right now? He's seated at the right hand of the Father. On that last time on the Mount of Olives, Jesus was standing there with his apostles and he left. He ascended into heaven right there, seated now at the right hand of the Father. And one of these days he's coming back to the Mount of Olives. That's called the second coming. When he comes the second time to come as the King of kings and Lord of lords, he comes back to the place that he left. Do not get that confused with the rapture. The rapture is Jesus comes in the clouds. He does not come to the earth. The very next event will be the rapture in which Jesus comes and all of us who know Christ as Savior will be taken off the face of the earth. That is not not the second coming. Second coming, he comes to the earth, to the Mount of Olives. Right now, he is seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession and being an advocate for each of us. He makes intercession when you pray. You pray, Holy Spirit hears your prayer, sends it to Jesus, Jesus at the right hand of the Father, Jesus tells. He is also your advocate. When you sin and you confess your sin, God can say he's faithful and just to forgive you. Why? Because Jesus Christ has already paid for all your sins. That's why he's there. That's where he is now. He has ascended, taken up into glory. So he is God who became a man, seen by the angels, announced to the world, believed, and taken up into heaven. Are we telling people this message? Do you tell people that Jesus is the Son of God, who died on the cross and paid for sin and rose again, has now returned to the Father, and that we should believe in him for eternal Life. We have the privilege and responsibility of proclaiming these truths. What have we seen this morning? Purpose of the letter. How to conduct ourselves in the body. Second, we've seen a poem about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Let me give you some applications. First one is this. Know how the church is to function. Know about leaders and leadership and characteristics and false teachers and prayer and dress and roles and men and women. Understand all that. Realize that we are, go ahead, yeah, we are a family. And that we gather and scatter. We gather for worship and training. We scatter to take the message in this community. So from now on, when you think about coming on a Sunday morning, say, I'm going there to worship my Savior. And as you give, and as you pray, and as you sing, and as you study, and as you make application, those are all acts of worship. And you're being trained and equipped, knowing the Word of God, knowing how it fits together, so that you can go into this community. You're scattered to take the message of Jesus Christ. It's very powerful. We're salt and light. Now let me ask you a question. Are you making a priority of gathering with fellow believers? Hebrews said, Seek not to forsake the assembly of yourself as the manner of some is. There were people who say, Well, it's just not really important. I had a guy today tell me it was really great. He just said, You know, Jimmy, this is the first time I've actually really understood exactly why we're supposed to come to church. People always say, Go to church, go to church. Why do I go to church? To worship your Savior and to be trained and equipped to serve Him. 
So understand, make the priority of gathering and then make the priority of scattering. Go into this community with the message of Jesus Christ. Second application is know who Jesus Christ is and what he has done. It's a great poem because it begins with his incarnation when he becoming a human being, which is the story of, of, of Christmas. And it goes all the way through to, to the fact that he died and rose again and then he ascended all the way back to heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father. He is God who became a person. He died and rose again. Angels saw his ministry. He is proclaimed in the world. All who believe in him have eternal life. And he is seated at the right hand of the Father. Here's what I hope. I hope that every one of you in this room, that you have believed in Jesus Christ as your Savior. That you understand that salvation is not by your works or goodness, but it's by Jesus Christ who left the glories of heaven, became a person, died on the cross, paid for sin, rose again, ascended back to the Father. He is to be announced and proclaimed, and He is to be believed. I hope and pray that every one of you in this room have believed in Jesus Christ for eternal life. If you have not, where you're sitting right now, you can trust Christ as your Savior. You can believe that He is the one that will give you eternal life that's life forever. It's not walking down an aisle. It's not giving you life. It's not being baptized. It's not your works or goodness or righteousness. It is simply faith alone in Christ alone for eternal life. I hope and pray that all of you have trusted Christ, that we as believers, that will make the priority of gathering so we can worship and be trained and a priority of scattering so that we can tell other people about Jesus. So as we gather for worship and training, may we also scatter to proclaim the, the truth of Jesus Christ to our community and our world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a passage. Thank you for these great truths. Help us to, to know them, Lord, and make application. Thank you, Lord, that you've written in your word how we're to function, what we're to do as we gather, as we scatter, as we take the message of Jesus Christ, as we equip the believers, as we worship our Savior. May we do that, Lord. Thank you for these believers. And then, Lord, thank you for the fact that, that we can realize who Jesus is, the one who died and rose again and gives eternal life. And thank you for that poem, Lord. And we, we, uh, we want to be able to know what we believe and why we believe it so we can tell other people. Thank you, Lord, for a great, great morning. And Lord, we just think about the college students again, knowing that the exams start tomorrow. We just pray for them, that they'll have time to study. They'll do a great job. They'll study the right things. They'll come to the study hall if they want to. They'll have, uh, uh, they'll just uh, do the very best they can do, and they'll give you honor and glory as they seek to live for you. Thank you for them, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.